Hello, and welcome to the Anxiety Rx podcast, a show created by an anxiety specialist and neuroscientist, me, that offers unique, practical, and actionable advice to help you understand what anxiety truly is and exactly what you can do to empower yourself to resolve it. I'm your host, Dr. Russell Kennedy, an MD who suffered with crippling anxiety for 30-plus years, and traditional therapy from psychiatrists and psychologists really didn't help me feel better. And I also didn't like being on psych meds. In 2013, after burning out and leaving medical practice, I came to the conclusion that if I was ever going to heal my anxiety, I would have to do it myself. And that's exactly what I did, drawing from experiences with psychedelics and holistic healing and combining those modalities with my scientific academic background in medicine, neuroscience, and developmental psychology. Here on the Anxiety Arcs podcast, I offer a distinctly non-traditional and non-medical approach to understanding and healing anxiety. So despite the fact I'm trained as a physician, in no way is what I say and suggest to be construed as medical advice because none of the ways I use to resolve anxiety has anything to do with traditional allopathic medicine. From my own healing, I've created a distinctly non-traditional understanding and approach that helps thousands of people from all over the world understand and relieve their chronic anxiety. So if you're ready, let's get into today's episode. This episode is going to be about attachment and how I think these attachment styles are getting a lot of publicity and a lot of press, and I think they're general guidelines, but I think a lot of people are taking them a little bit too literally. You know, like I'm a disorganized attachment or I'm an avoidant attacher or whatever. And it's in a continuum. Like it's, it's not, these attachment styles aren't who you are. And I think like everything in the way we look at the world these days, everyone has to have an explanation. And it gets reduced down to these things like I'm an anxious attachment, you know, or an anxious attacher. And I don't know if that's good. I don't know if that's something we really want to foster. Yes, there is some benefit to knowing roughly how you attach to people. But you can be securely attached to one person and have a disorganized attachment with another. So it really, it's a guideline. It's a guideline. It's not something that that you should stamp on your forehead, like secure attached, because it doesn't really work that way. And I think we're getting into this place where we start thinking that we label ourselves. And I think that can be helpful in terms of awareness on some level, but it can also, it can also kind of pigeonhole us into a type of attachment style that we don't have all the time. Because there's, Dan Siegel talks about this. There's this idea that we should be this homogenous human being. Like we should be consistent with our emotions. And we're not. We're just not. It's sometimes you can lose your shit. And sometimes you can be quite directed and focused. So attachment styles are one of these things that are kind of, you know, they're loose. They're a guideline, I think. And that's the way to look at them is they're, a, they're kind of a guideline. So John Bowlby back in the 50s and Mary Ainsworth, a Canadian E, came up with this idea that we need attachment and children need to be attached to their parent because they need their parent for survival. So often we will attach to parents who aren't that great for us in a lot of ways because we have no choice. We have no choice. This, this is what we're given. And if you have a parent who is relatively securely attached yourself themselves, you're lucky because it's estimated that about 60% of the population has a secure attachment in general. So your odds are 
I know, three out of five that you'll have a secure attachment and two out of five, 40%, a lot of people that had a parent who wasn't that securely attached. And this shows up. It really shows up. And we see it, I see it a lot with people who struggle with anxiety because that sensitivity to love, that ability to let love in, that ability to trust love is really important for our overall health and our overall ability to avoid disease and just avoid the vicissitudes of life. And I'm going to warn you because I'm about 12 days out of a relatively minor surgery, but they still put me under, so I'm not 100% yet, so my brain may go off in different directions. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. I want to keep consistent. I want to let you know that I'm going to put out an episode every week. So this week, I'm going to talk about attachment and how we're kind of getting locked into this idea. Like, There's all these quizzes like, take the quiz so I know what kind of attachment style you have. And again, it's, it's a guideline. It's a guideline. And I think it helps us understand on some level because it creates awareness. If, if it does nothing else, it creates awareness into why am I like this? But I think we can be securely attached to one person and have a disorganized attachment to another. And I think it really comes down to what was your attachment when you were a child? Did you have a secure attachment with a parent? Did you not? Because it's really about trusting love. Just about everything is about trusting love. Your healing is about trusting love. Everything is really coming down to, do I trust love? Do I trust love for myself? That's probably the biggest thing for me is understanding that I do have a tremendous amount of love for myself. It's just, but I also have a tremendous amount of blocks to that love. And I think that's what creates my anxiety or my alarm, to use my own vernacular there. Because if you don't trust love, you're always going to be tentative about the world. You're going to have episodes where you feel secure and humorous and attached. And then you're going to have episodes where you don't. And if you don't trust love, you're going to have a real problem. And this is where I see a lot of my anxious patients. When you don't trust love, that is a real problem. And I think what attachment does to a child is it says, hey, love is safe. Love is safe. And if you don't have an attachment, like a a secure attachment, specifically with a parent early on, then we get this feeling like love can't really be trusted. It comes and it goes. And a lot of the evidence now is suggesting that it's not so much if your mother was intrusive or um, abusive. A lot of it is if your mother just abandoned you, which I think, you know, I think when we get a mother who's, who's obviously hurting us, we develop a little boundary or a little barrier in there. But if you have a mother that's sometimes very warm and connected and other times off the frickin' rails, that's really difficult, I think, for kids. Because I think as our nervous system matures, we look at the world based on how our nervous system is formed. So if that nervous system is formed in this secure environment, we're more resilient, we're more able to kind of roll with the punches. But if it's disorganized, so if it's inconsistent, and if a parent is inconsistent, it's almost worse that a parent is inconsistent than it is if they're 
overtly narcissistic or abusive. Now, that's up for debate, of course. But I think a lot of people have this idea, you know, my childhood was good. My childhood was great. You know, I want to branch into Dr. Evil. My childhood was typical. Summers in Rangoon, luge lessons. In the spring, we'd make meat helmets. But it's really about, did you have that secure attachment? Did you have a parent that you could trust consistently? Because it's almost worse if you can you trust a parent and then they go off the rails, which is basically my what happened with me. I trusted and loved my father because when he was sane, he was great. He was, he was attached. He was loving. He was playful. But when he was psychotic or schizophrenic or depressed or manic, I couldn't trust him. So I have this disorganized attachment towards love, towards is love safe? And I think 99% of my anxiety peeps, the people I talk to about anxiety, had a disorganized attachment with one or both parents. Because our nervous system forms, you know, most of our brain development occurs before five years old. So if we're in an environment where we're young and we don't have that attachment or that sense that we are safe, that love is safe, that we don't have to start looking after a parent, which happens as we get older. For me, it was about 10 years old. But a lot of us grew up with that feeling like, hey, this person, this parent, clearly are not, they're, they're not attached to reality at this point. So we start developing, as we start developing as into young adults, we start taking the reins. We start looking at how do I look after my parent? And this is where a lot of empaths, so-called empaths, are formed because we get very, very good at reading our parent because we need them to survive, but not so great about reading ourselves, not so great about looking inside. So we get very good at reading other people and giving them what they need as opposed to what we need, which is what I was talking about in my session this week with my own therapist. I have an SE therapist. I'm doing SE training right now. So we have to do a number of sessions with uh, an SE therapist. And we really talked this week about why, you know, why can't I give to myself? Why am I always trying to help other people? And I think it comes down to this place with my mother and my father, because I kind of, as the oldest boy, as the oldest child anyway, looked after them in a lot of ways, especially as I got older. No surprise I became a doctor because I became a caregiver at a very early age. So I, I have parts of me that are anxiously attached to my mother's own fear, her own anxiety, which I could read very clearly, even as a child. I have this ancient, anxious attachment to my mother when she starts getting anxious. And I said before, I've talked about before, I feel like I have to make her laugh. Like right now she's in hospital, she has COVID, not that badly, she has asthma, so it's they've hospitalized her, but she's doing okay as far as the COVID goes. She's struggling because she's almost 90, she'll be 90 in August. But I have this compulsion to make her laugh because when she laughs, even to this day, even 30 years, 40 years later, when she laughs, there's a part of me that just goes, oh, okay, she laughed. There's part of me that's got quite a secure attachment to my mother. The, the parts of her that are loving and kind and generous, which is a lot of her, are securely attached to her. 
there's part of me that's disorganized attachment to her when, when she starts going, stop that, stop that. If she hears a noise or if I'm doing something that annoys her or if I'm getting angry on some level, she will start shutting me down in some way, which she did when I was a child. So I have this disorganized attachment. So when I get, when I get ignored or when, I, when I'm told what I can and cannot do, I have a little internal freak out. And I have that disorganized attachment to my mother. So I think what I'm saying is that we can have different attachments to different people. And it's not just one thing. So it's really important to understand that we can be anxious with some people, we can be avoidant with others, we can be disorganized with others, and we can be secure with people as well. So avoiding pigeonholing ourselves. But again, awareness. It's all about awareness. So with my dad because he would be so loving and so connected to me, and then all of a sudden just go off the rails, this was really hard for me. My mother, I could understand a little more because she had a tremendous amount of stress in her life. Like she was the breadwinner in a family and the family is a registered nurse. Um, she, took, she took care of all the laundry, all the, all the stuff around the house. And the three of us lumps, my mother, my brother and I would just sit around and my mother would do everything. And we... You know, that was all we knew. So, you know, it causes some problems with me these day, to this day because I don't, I didn't really learn how to take care of myself that well. I'm learning now a lot more about taking care of myself and that all comes into it. I think we, we develop this attachment to ourselves as well as to other people. So how is the attachment internally? Because there's that old saying that says we, we can't love another person greater than what we love ourselves. Now, these are little cliches and stuff, and I think there's, there's truth in them as well. It's really important, though, to understand that we're on a continuum as human beings. Like, sometimes we can feel quite loving, quite close, quite attentive and attached, and then other times quite dismissive and quite uh, off-putting. So for me, you know, as I was starting about talking about my uh, appointment with my, my own therapist, one of the big questions we talked about this week was, what about me? Like, what about me? I'm very good at being a doctor. I'm very good at helping people. I'm very good at doing this kind of work. And I love this kind of work because I think it's really why I was put on this earth was to help other people with their emotional dysregulation. Started off with my parents, but I continued on doing it. But there is this sense in me, like, what about me? How attached am I to myself? How much do I look after myself? Because again, when I, when I was a child, I spent a lot of energy looking after my mother and looking after my father, make sure my father was, was not going crazy, like not going depressed, not going anxious, not going manic. And my mother making sure that she was just okay in general because she held the whole family together. She was the backbone of the family. So what about me? That was the big question this week that we talked about. And she said, well, where do you feel that in your body? I said, well, there's, there's this place in my chest. It feels like it's kind of hollowed out, like scalloped out, like you would take with a, with a potato peeler and like scalloped out. Because I do have this, this deep desire to be seen, to be validated, which is one of the reasons why I do Instagram and one of the reasons I do this, absolutely, is for, I don't want to say the attention, but I think probably is. This is sense of external validation because I don't give enough to myself. So 
And I think that's true for a lot of us, is that we demand external validation either through other people or through other things or through addictions. Not that addictions validate us, but at least they, they kind of fill the hole in our heart. They fill that, that sense of longing, that sense for connection. But it's sense of connection in a safe way. So if I get something on Instagram that says, hey, you're doing great. Thank you for helping me. I, I love the fact that you're, you're doing this. You, know, you make a real difference in my life. Makes me feel really good. And I can accept that because it's, in a way it's kind of at a distance. right? But if I have one of my friends who I've been helping lately really heartfelt say, hey, you know what? What you said to me last week really made a huge difference in the way I'm acting with my partner and the way I'm connecting with myself. You know, I, I really, I'm really appreciative of that. I have a hard time with that. I, I, I love it. I, I love the feeling of it. But there's something about it that says, ah, this can't be trusted. So I think a lot of us have this sense of external validation, aka Instagram. <laughs> a lot of people on Instagram, you know, have this, this thirst for external validation as a way of kind of making up for the secure attachment they didn't get when they were kids. So if you look at, at someone who just compulsively posts on Instagram, and you can tell kind of, you can tell who really, really needs it. So this is what I was talking about in my, in my therapy session. It's like, how do I know that I really, like, I, I really need this? I, I need this external validation, or it's just something I wanna do because I, I love people, I love helping people. I don't like seeing people suffer. It really bothers me when I see people suffer and I feel there's something I can do about it. So I'm really kind of at this crossroads. You know, after the surgery, it's made me a lot more introspective, I guess, in what do I need? Like, what's important to me? And I think we can all ask ourselves that question. Like, what's important to you? Where are you not giving yourself? And I know how cliche this sounds. Like, believe me, I know how cliche this sounds. But where are you not giving yourself the attention that you're demanding from other people? And this is another thing that's been said millions of times before is like, it will never be enough from the outside. It will never be enough from the outside. And I think that's true to some extent, but I think getting validation from the outside, especially if, if it's your life's work like this, like what I do here, helping people with anxiety, it's really important for me to, to get that external validation because it keeps me going. It like, it drives me to, you know, put out a, a podcast uh, on a weekend where I'm recovering from surgery, I don't feel that great, but you know, it's, it's important for me to be consistent. I think because, getting back to attachment, I didn't have consistent attachment when I was younger. And when I see people suffer, and, and I was like this as a medical doctor too, when I see people suffer, it really bothers me. It really bothers me to see people suffer, which is getting back to my mother. Like when I see her suffer, I compulsively feel like I have to make her laugh, and once she laughs, I feel better. So again, like what about me? What do I need? And I think it's something that we, especially if you struggle with anxiety, clearly we're not giving ourselves enough. That's why we struggle with anxiety is because we have this conflicted relationship with love and especially the love that we have for ourselves. And it's not that we don't have enough love. There's enough love in there. I've seen people who are brutally abused and we can find the love that they have for themselves. But there's so many blocks. There are so many blocks to love. Like in a way, anxiety is really you're blocking love. And part of you knows that you're blocking that love. 
And I think that's where a lot of the self-reproach comes from, the negativity, because we know that we have it in us, but we just can't seem to open up those, those floodgates of connection and love for ourselves. Because if we could, we'd have less anxiety. And that's, that's where I'm at now. I mean, I'm so much better at giving myself attention, and love, and connection than I was even five years ago, which is the reason why my anxiety has, has resolved to the point that it has, is because specifically that I've been able to give this connection to myself. And it's not that it wasn't there. It's just that there were so many blocks to it. And those blocks came, I think, from the fact that my attachment when I was younger was so inconsistent. And I was a really sensitive kid. That's the other thing. Is like if you're very, very sensitive, you need more connection than most people. And that's I think that's the problem, is that you need more connection than your parents have to give you. Even, even if they were loving, even if they were attentive, even if they were connected with you, you just needed more. And that's kind of the kid that I was. I just needed more. So the way I got my needs met is I started looking after my parents. And in a way, that external validation, you know, Rusty's so, you know, clever, Rusty's so good at, at making us laugh, Rusty's this, Rusty's that, that I started using that to fuel me as opposed to, you know, real, true, honest love and connection, which I really didn't get a lot of when I was younger. So when you don't get a lot of connection, validation, love, support when you're younger, I think we look at it, we, we demand it from the outside. We start demanding external validation. And in a way, when we get it, that becomes the pathway that we start taking, you know, because I know I'm smart, so my accomplishments start taking over. So that's how I got my validation, becoming a doctor, doing all that kind of thing. But it's hollow. It doesn't really last. And it doesn't, in fact, I think it makes anxiety worse. I think when you, when you depend on someone else to fill your cup, you are in this very vulnerable, almost victim-like position because your destiny isn't in your hands. And what I'm saying is to heal from anxiety is you have to start bringing your own connection to yourself, finding ways to just bring that younger version of you along. Like if you're having fun doing something, like if you're on the beach or you're having a walk with your partner or whatever, and you're really enjoying yourself, bring that child with you. You know, have a version of what that child looks like. You know, I've often said, you know, have a picture of, of your younger self with you or something that you can look at. Like I have, I have it on my phone. I have a picture of myself on my phone when I was just, I don't know if this shows up on the camera, when I was uh, three or four years old. And it's my, it's my phone screensaver. And I think it's really about how connected can you be to that child? How, how can you give that child now what they didn't get back then? Because I think with neuroplasticity and especially the subcortical brain circuits, the, the part of us that feels, I think we can change that. I think we can start, but it takes, it takes a real intense love for yourself, which has to be built. I don't think it's one of those things that you can just decide to love yourself after many years of just sort of denying yourself or the inner critic, that what I call jabs, judge, judging yourself, abandoning yourself, blaming yourself, and shaming yourself. I think when you do that for a long time, that split takes a while to kind of recover because that split 
is what caused your alarm in the first place. And that alarm, I do believe, is your younger self asking for this love and attention and this attachment that it didn't get when you were a child. So can you start giving the sense of attachment that you didn't get when you were young to yourself now? And again, can you accept it? Because if you spent your life mistrusting love and being avoidant and pushing love away to some extent or or not allowing it in because you felt like it was going to get taken away. That's another common theme that I hear from my anxious peeps is that I, I, I love the love, but I'm constantly afraid that the rug's going to get pulled out. I'm constantly afraid that it's going to get taken away because that was our childhood experience. And we do replicate our childhood experience in our adulthood. Unconsciously, Freud called it the repetition compulsion where we reproduce the circumstances of our childhood in our adulthood unconsciously. We automatically do that. We pick the same type of partner. We, we do the same thing. We create, for me, it was chaos. Like I created a lot of chaos in my life because chaos was the norm when I was a child. Another podcast, we'll do it some other time. But this one is really about how can you attach to yourself? How can you find something that you can? And one of the things that I do is I listen to music that's very evocative. And then I bring my younger self. There is this thing that I do every morning that I was hesitating telling you about, but I'm going to tell you about it. So there's this song by Peter Gabriel, Gabriel called In Your Eyes. And that song to me is really about, he's talking to himself. He's talking to his younger self. And I listen to that song every morning and I look at that picture of myself while I'm listening to the song. This is what I do. And there's two versions of it. There's the recorded version, which is about five minutes, and there's the live version, which is about eight minutes. And I love both. But if you listen to it, and I may actually do a podcast on this because I love this so much, he's really talking to his younger self and talking about how in your eyes, the light, the heat, you know, the light, I see the light of, you know, my, my divineness. I see the light, but I also see the heat. I also see the pain that you went through. So it's something that I listen to every morning, and I would recommend that you try it too. Peter Gabriel, In Your Eyes, if you get a picture of yourself when you're younger, listen to that song while you look at, and if it doesn't make you cry, I don't know, maybe you're Terminator 3, maybe you're, you, <laughs> or, or it's just a sign that you know you block yourself to love. And you listen to the lyrics, and I think I will do a podcast maybe next time on how the lyrics of that song are really talking to himself and how he's talking about being attached to himself. And if you listen to it with that idea in mind that he's talking to his younger self, it's really powerful. And it really, it's really helped me attach to myself. So I think I'm going to finish there. I think I'm going to finish with that. And, I, and that would be my, my advice to you, is get a picture of yourself, put it on your phone, whatever you're going to do, and listen to Peter Gabriel's song, In Your Eyes, every morning, while you while you look at your your child and it does some it did something to me it it does something to you when you do that again it takes you back to a place that may be uncomfortable but it's all about developing that attachment to yourself because that's how you heal anxiety is becoming attached to yourself it doesn't matter how much you get from the outside there's lots of movie stars there's lots of rock stars whatever that are dreadfully unhappy they have billions of dollars maybe not billions but millions and it's really about 
being attached to yourself. That's, that's how you heal, is developing this secure attachment to yourself, especially if you didn't have it as a child. And you probably didn't have it as a child, and that's why you're anxious. That's why, or alarmed. So that's where I'm going to cut it off this week. Thanks for indulging me. I might have rambled a little bit this time, but I'm still recovering. But I really appreciate all the, the notes I get on Instagram. I really appreciate the notes on the book. I really appreciate the, the um, reviews of the book on Amazon. It's, it's really helpful for me because I think part of me, you know, when I was talking to my therapist and saying, what about me? Part of me, I know, is here, as cliche as it sounds, to help other people. Like that's what I'm, I'm really here for that. Like I, I know that, that resonates so deeply with me. But I also know that I need to be able to give it to myself. And part of my healing journey, to use, I'm full of cliches today, my God. Part of my healing journey is to learn how to give that secure attachment to myself. And when I do that, I don't feel alarmed. This is why the alarm started, is because I didn't get that when I was a child. Not that my childhood was terrible, it wasn't. There's parts of it that were quite lovely and loving and caring. But in general, for me, being a sensitive person that I am, I didn't get the attachment that I needed. And that's why I developed anxiety, or alarm, as I like to call it. And the, the, how to heal from alarm is developing that secure attachment to yourself. So thanks. So that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And if the Anxiety Rx podcast resonates with you, consider getting my book, also coincidentally called Anxiety Rx. Or you can follow me on any of the social media platforms at The Anxiety MD or my website, www.theanxietymd.com. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you the next time on the Anxiety Rx podcast.